Hello, everyone. Hi. I'm Darnell, like Kim said. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Kim, for your prayer. I'll be giving the message today, and the message is taken out of the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you could just turn to that passage. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles located underneath the chairs right in front of you. And I'll give you a second. These designs are beautiful. I walked in this morning and I thought I was in Athens. <laughs> and so today what I'll be focusing on is the patterns of the early church. The patterns of the early church. And hopefully as we study this passage together, we can use these scriptures about the early church to um, use it as sort of a, a model or an example of how church life in general should be like. Can everyone hear me clearly? Yes. Good. Now, before I start the sermon, I'd like to set the background by giving an overview of how this early church in Acts began to become effective. And so before this early church got to the point where they were established as the church, you know, the church, the same church that was mentioned later on in the book of Acts that was said to have turned the world upside down. You know, the same church that was casting out demons and healing the sick and raising the dead, the same church that you and I are currently in at this very moment. That same church began in Jerusalem, and it was on the day of Pentecost. And on that very same day, a great miracle took place. And that miracle was, of course, the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And so all the believers were said to be in one place in this house, and the believers at the time, they were listening to Jesus' command to stay in Jerusalem and tarry there until they're clothed with power from on high. And so they listened to Jesus' command, and the scriptures described them as being in this house, and they were all in one place. And then all of the sudden, they hear this sound, and it sounded like the blowing of a rushing mighty wind. Remember that? It was this rushing mighty wind. And now the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, filled this house. And the believers now were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it is said that these tongues of fire were said to come down and rest on them. These tongues that resembled fire. And then they started speaking in these various tongues and the various tongues were literal languages that they did not originally know at the time. And so these Jews that were celebrating the Feast of Pentecost that day in Jerusalem, they heard the sounds of what was taking place in this house. And so naturally, they gathered together, they rallied together to see the meaning of all this commotion. And so... As they stood there and witnessed these Galileans speaking in their very own native tongues, 
the natural response is to question each other. And they questioned each other saying, well, aren't these Galileans? They didn't understand how these Galileans, who obviously weren't from these nations, were speaking in the language of these nations. These Galileans were speaking in fluent Egyptian or fluent Mesopotamian. And it was so confusing, but at the same time, they were amazed and perplexed at these Galileans. Now, let me put some background on Galilee. A Galilean in the Bible was a person that lived in the area of Israel that was near the Sea of Galilee. And in the time of Christ, Galilee was in the northern part of Israel, Samaria was in the middle, and Judea was in the south. Approximately 700 years before Christ, Galilee was conquered by Assyria. And so most of the Jews living there were relocated into Syria. So now while the non-Jewish immigrants moved on into, uh, into uh, Galilee, and that is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 15, they moved on into Galilee. So now Galilee was filled with these people that weren't originally Jews. And this is why Isaiah refers to the area like this. He refers to it, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. And so Judeans tended to look down on Galileans. They viewed them as uneducated and of questionable ancestry. Galilee was the lesser side of Israel. Galilee was the weaker side of Israel. And the fact that Jesus lived and ministered in Galilee is a good example of his identification with those that the world rejects. And isn't that a common theme in the Bible? God using the weaker, God using the lesser. It brings to mind 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things of the world, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. No one boasts before God. And so we see God using these very same rejected Galileans to fulfill this astounding prophecy. And this prophecy was from the prophet Joel about the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And Peter explains this as he comes out and gives his sermon to the crowd. And in one sense, Peter's sermon does not seem to be very seeker-friendly at all. I don't think Peter's sermon would be, would be very popular in our pulpits of today. But in another sense, 3,000 people accepted Christ that day. 3,000 people accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they were saved. They were saved. That day they were saved. And I don't think I need to be cautious in saying that being saved is a prerequisite to being a member of the church or part of the body of Christ. It is a prerequisite. To be a Christian, you must be saved. 
you must have repented from your former life and have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for the free gift of salvation which comes through him alone. You must have believed that Jesus has come in the flesh, suffered, died for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day, and now through him we can be born again. And we could be made into new creations. Now, I want to explain something, though. It's not about jumping through hoops to get into the church. It's not about being forced or coerced to having faith in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at verse 41 in Acts 2. It says this, Then they that gladly received his word. That's in the King James Version. They that gladly received his word were baptized. They gladly received his word. They openly and willingly received the word of God. And this is how it's been throughout the centuries and beyond. God puts a desire in his people. And then we begin to long for God. And we begin to thirst for God. And we begin to desire God. That's why Jesus could stand up in the midst of a crowd and say, If anyone thirsts, if anyone is lost, if anyone has met a dead end, if anyone has not found what they're looking for in this world, let them come to me. Let them come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, from within them shall flow rivers of living water. Do you thirst for God this morning? Do you thirst for God? Do you desire God? This morning, do you thirst for God like David thirsted for God in Psalm 63 when he wrote, Oh God, you are my God, and I long for you. My whole being desires you like a dry, worn out, and waterless land. My soul thirsts for you. The church always had a thirst for God. We need God, every second, every minute. And so now the background of the early church is in place. This church in Jerusalem now has 3,120 members and counting. And these members have fully accepted the message of Jesus Christ. They're open. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're ready. And so let's see what the Holy Spirit begins to do and, uh, through these people. Verse 42 says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. It says they devoted themselves to these four things. That word devoted means continually devoting. It's progressive. It's the idea of giving constant attention to or being steadfast. The Greek interlinear concordance renders it this, to be in constant readiness for, to wait on constantly. It's almost like a sacrificial act. It's a believer removing themselves out of the way to partake in something that is of high standard, that is of high value. In Psalms 118, 
verse 27, it says this, bind the sacrifice with cords, even to the four horns of the altar. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even to the four horns of the altar. We are called in the Bible, you and I, to be living sacrifices. Paul says it like this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It is a reasonable thing for you and me to say, Lord, I am yours. I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to give you my all. And I'm going to be a living sacrifice. You see, the problem with living sacrifices, though, is unlike dead ones, they have a tendency to stand up and jump off the altar. I mean, we can say, Lord, I'm laying down my life. I'm giving you my life. And we mean well by it. But very too frequently, honestly, we find ourselves jumping off the altar, getting off the altar. And so what we need is to be tied to the altar. We need to be tied to the altar, just like Psalms 118 says. See, in this temple, the altar had these four horns on each corner. And the sacrifice was literally tied with ropes when they were on the altar. And it was so that the, the sacrifice wouldn't slide off when they were burning it or when they were maneuvering the sacrifice. And obviously, the animals were already dead, but to make sure it stayed in the proper place, they would tie the animal to the altar. We, too, need to be tied to the altar. We need to be steady. We need to stay in place. We need to be tied to the altar. Now, you might ask, how might we be tied? The scriptures suggest these four things that will keep you and I from losing it, from jumping off the altar, from wandering away, from getting ourselves into all kinds of trouble. These four things, and maybe these four things are related to the four horns of the altar that help to tie the sacrifice in. What will keep us tied in? What will keep us steady? What will keep us going strong day after month after year after decade and on into and through eternity? Four things. First, the apostles' teaching. And so as the church was birthed, immediately they began to be taught by the apostles. How can we be taught by the apostles? Well, we can be taught by the apostles by doing this, reading 1 John, reading 2 John, reading 3 John, 2 Peter, James, Jude. By reading the scriptures, we too are taught by the apostles. And it's not just reading the New Testament that we are taught, because the apostles quoted and taught Old Testament scriptures as well. They realized that the entire Bible was valuable and essential and that the whole word of God was profitable. And so they would teach from the scriptures the apostles' doctrine. A Christian church, a church that follows Christ, will emphasize the teaching of God's word. A Christian church 
will implement the faithful, consistent, simple teaching of God's word. Nothing obscure, nothing mysterious, just the simple, undiluted word of God. And the second thing that the believers in this early church partook in is fellowship. Now, this word fellowship in the Greek is koinonia, koinonia. And that word koinonia that is translated fellowship is also translated in a number of different ways in the Bible. Listen to how it's translated. Sometimes it's translated communion. Other times, contribution. Other times, it's translated as sharing. And finally, it's translated as a partnership. Now, if we sum up the meanings of all these words and come up with one definition, I believe it will be this, the sharing of the life of Jesus Christ. The sharing of the life of Jesus Christ. Fellowship is not just simply a social gathering, although there's nothing wrong with social gatherings. But this word koinonia is, implies that it is more than just a social gathering. It is a spiritual gathering. It is being social over spiritual matters. It is not coming to the church simply to be spectators. It is a common shared life with believers. When, the, when we fellowship with each other, we gather with a goal, don't we? We gather with a goal. What is that goal? It is simply this, to love one another, to share with one another, to stimulate spiritual growth within each other's lives. Here are practical examples of koinonia within the early church. In verses 44 to 47, it says this, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold their property, and possessions, and they gave to anyone who had need. And every day, they continued to meet together in the courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This early church had koinonia. They had a spiritual bond. They were together. They were one. And it was through that bond that the Lord began to bless them and bless them. And then he added to their numbers every day those who were being saved. Moving on to the third thing that the early church partook in is the breaking of bread, which in this context speaks of communion which will be taken today. It's remembering constantly that Jesus gave his life for me and now my sins are washed away. I'm forgiven and now his life is imparted in me. He is risen from the dead and now his spirit lives in me. And so therefore, I'm going to come to the table constantly. I'm going to come to the table constantly. Communion has always been an important ingredient within the church. It is an act of worship that not only 
requires us to remember his death, but that his death is so great that it must be declared. His death must be declared on the mountaintops. The Lord's Supper should never be taken lightly. The Lord's Supper should never be taken lightly. It is a proclamation of the Lord's death. It is a proclamation of not only his death, but also his second coming. And so the early church partook in the Lord's Supper, and they did it faithfully. It was a common thing amongst them. It wasn't just some religious tradition. It was a lifestyle. It says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And the fourth thing is prayer. They gave themselves over to prayer. How important is prayer? Well, how important is our relationship with God? Well, prayer is just as important in a relationship with God as conversing is important in a relationship to anyone in this world. Charles Spurgeon says this about prayer. Prayer is the natural outgushing of a soul in communion with Jesus. Just as a leaf and the fruit will come out of the vine branch without any conscious effort on the part of the branch, but simply because of its living union with the stem, so prayer buds and blossoms and fruits out of the soul of a believer that is abiding in Jesus. Prayer is essential to our relationship with God. It is very essential. Paul says to pray without ceasing. In other words, don't stop. Press forward and let your prayers be heard before the throne of God Almighty. Don't stop. Keep going. Persist. And so these are the four horns of the altar that will keep you steady, that will keep you in place, and ultimately, it will keep you bearing much fruit for God. And so it says next, as they did these things, verse 43, fear came upon every soul. And that word for fear means they were in awe, blown away. They were just in reverential awe, fearing the Lord in that positive way. And many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. Signs and wonders from the apostles that would verify the ministry of the apostles. These apostles who were teaching the church in those very infant days needed to be verified. I mean, did these guys really have authority? Could they really write scripture? Could they write scripture like the Old Testament prophets would do? Is it valid? It was validated by signs and wonders. They also did signs and wonders similar to the ones Jesus did in his earthly ministry. And so the church knew for sure through the apostles' signs and wonders that they had the power of God flowing through them and that the authority of God was upon them through signs and wonders. 
And so these are the patterns of the church. We pray together. We fellowship with one another. We take the Lord's Supper together. We follow the apostles' teaching. It isn't anything new. It isn't anything exotic. We don't need a smoke machine at the altar. We don't need a rock and roll band to spice things up. We're simple people. We sing simple hymns and simple songs to God. We're not perfect people. We've never been perfect. But we love one another. We love those around us. And we love God. And I'll close with this statement. If we have anything against each other, it's better that we just correct the issue right now. Because we're going to see each other's faces for a very long time. <laughs> the Christian church is by far the most, I should say the Christian relationship is by far the most unique relationship ever. No relationship could compare. The Christian relationship will go on for eternity. You will be my brothers. You will be my sisters forever. Thank you.